Welcome to the Preacher Girl Podcast. I'm Diane Wright. The reading for today is from Serving Fire by Anne Scott. Anne describes an experience in a Chinese monastery. She says, Early in the trip, I asked for vegetarian food. At every meal, I've been offered a bowl of rice and cabbage cooked in a northern Chinese style. Sometimes a dish of peanuts has livened the cuisine. I expect no change in the fare and wait patiently for my food. The others begin to eat. They finish their meal. I am still waiting. I wonder if my dinner has been forgotten. I'm ready to fill a bowl with plain rice when the waiter walks into the dining room carrying an array of dishes which he arranges before me. He returns with more until there are almost a dozen dishes on the table. This is no meal. It's an offering. Everyone becomes silent before such artistry. Wild black mushrooms shimmer in a glossy red sweet and sour sauce. Leafy greens are bright and fresh and warmed with ginger. Spicy bean curd is flecked with fiery red peppers. Tiny slivers of carrots, fresh sliced bamboo shoots, and deep-fried gluten puffs float in golden sesame sauce. I stare at the food in awe, my mind blank. The only sound comes from the ceiling fan rhythmically stirring the humid air. Then the cook enters and approaches our table. He bows low before me. He is grateful to me, he explains, because since his years as a cook in a Buddhist monastery, he has had little opportunity to cook vegetarian food for anyone who appreciates it. The wild mushrooms, he tells me, were picked in a nearby forest. The greens are from gardens known for the quality of their vegetables. He bows slowly and thanks me once again. I stumble over my own words of gratitude as he quietly disappears into the kitchen. I never see him again. I didn't sleep that night. The cook's reverence and humility sliced through years of protective hardness and caught me without warning. His food was saturated with love, and its nurturance was almost too much to bear. The talk today is entitled, Breathing and Repeating, The Importance of Ritual. The world around us shifts and breathes. We've been reminded of this in vivid ways this month, watching in horror as the earthquake rocked Japan, followed by the swirling, relentless waters of the tsunami. It's part of a cycle and rhythm we grope to understand. I thought about these rhythms this month as my son and I drove eastward on a brisk night, following a rural highway that led us directly into the rising supermoon. It was a full moon at perigee, the point in the oval orbit of the moon when it is closest to the earth, and my son and I marveled at its brightness and size. My son will be 27 when it happens again. We drove until we both started getting tired, and then we pulled off at an exit, drove up the ramp and onto the bridge over the highway, and pulled over for a moment to say our thanks to the moon, to say a special hello as it passed so closely. My son fell asleep as I drove back home.
back toward the lights of the city, glancing occasionally at the moon in my rearview mirror. I wouldn't know anything about the rhythm of the supermoon without all the resources we have at hand, without the NPR commentator mentioning it, without my compulsion and ability to Google it. Some might say that the radio and the computer are themselves symptoms of the larger forces that keep me from knowing about the supermoon. Maybe in some other time and place, I would have been noticing the enlarging moon, and holy men who kept track of these things might have gathered the tribe together for a special ceremony. We don't have holy men tracking these rhythms now. Our fingertip access to all this information lulls us into a feeling that we somehow know it by osmosis, or that we don't need to know it, we'll hear the warning sirens or the radio announcement. I'd like us to think today about a better balance between all we can know today about the rhythms of our world and our lives and the attention we pay or don't pay to those rhythms. Think for a minute about rhythms as concentric circles. We'll start with the rhythm we can't even see, the electron around the nucleus of an atom. Jump outward to that key rhythm of our consciousness, the heartbeat. As I write this, the cursor on the screen pulses in a rhythm closely matching my own heart's rhythm. It is this level of rhythm, this close concentric circle, that brings to mind music and prayer. The rhythm of heartbeat and breathing is the rhythm of consciousness, the core of meditation. I think about the word spirituality, how it contains the word spiro or breath and ritual or a repeated significant action or observance. From heartbeat and breathing, the circle barely widens to include our physical rhythms, the rhythm of an infant feeding, the rhythm of a runner, the rhythm of two bodies, and it leads us to the rhythm of sleeping and waking that connects us to the spinning of our earth. Herb Gardner in the play A Thousand Clowns says, you have got to own your own days and name them, and each of them, every one of them, or else the years go by and none of them belongs to you. Each morning, the sun rises and places a new day before us like a gift. What if, instead of groaning and pulling the covers over our head, we began with the ritual of a smile and a prayer of thanks for the day? I say the ritual of a smile because for many people, smiling has fallen out of habit and has to be a conscious choice. But once we choose it, it becomes more natural. Try it now. It can actually change our brain chemistry to smile. How many of us smile when we are alone? Smile at the sky. Smile at the gift of rain. In Herb Gardner's play, the main character found a reason for celebration each day. It makes me think about the wonderful surprises I find many days on Google, telling me something of note about the date in history. But we needn't limit it to a history outside our own lives. 
For me, this week, there is the first day I saw a woodpecker in the yard, my first visit with my son to the Freedom Center, the re-emergence of daffodils. Sometimes in our culture, I think we forget to make any space for real life. In the fret and frantic pace of our days, we forget how easy it would be to set time aside, even a moment, to speak our intentions, even if we speak them silently, inwardly. Here are some moments we might embrace in a new way. The moment we've settled into the driver's seat just before we turn the key. What if we used that moment to look at the sky, to say, I'm thankful to be here again, thankful for this world where I can use these amazing creations to do good work, to see those I love. And at the end of each trip, even our commute home, after the engine stops, thank you for these journeys. A friend of mine was conducting a training on a therapeutic technique that focuses on solutions rather than dissecting problems. In the technique, the core question becomes, if tomorrow morning you awakened and during the night your problem had been solved while you were asleep by a miracle, what would the day be like and look like and feel like for you? My friend described her experience using this technique in therapy with a man who had spent most of his adult life in and out of prison. When he was not incarcerated, he was in a chaotic world involving homelessness, drug addiction, and severe symptoms of mental illness. When she asked what the world would be like, he brightened and calmed and said, I would feel warm and peaceful. I would wake up in my own apartment. I wouldn't be hungry. I would be getting ready to go to work at a job. I would be so grateful. I considered his words, and I considered my own warm, peaceful morning, plenty of hot water in my shower, getting ready not just for a job, but a job I love. I think often of my ancestors, especially the women, in the line of heritage and genetics that leads to me and to my children. I imagine giving my 17th, 18th, and 19th century great-great-great-grandmothers a tour of my home and my life, and I imagine their shock at how liberated I have become from the tasks that comprised most of their day, gathering water, tending a fire, doing laundry by hand, cooking meals not just from scratch, but having to grow or travel by foot or carriage to get the ingredients. In the time I have that they didn't have, am I honoring them and their labor? So, what day is it today? A birthday? An anniversary? A holy day in your religious tradition? How can we set aside more time to hold our intentions for each day, each action, consciously in our hearts? And how can we listen to our own rhythms and also look outside ourselves to the rhythms of life and the world that create the context in which we live? People will say there just isn't time. <laughs> 
But how are we using our time? It's like the fundraising theme on public radio. Think of the ways we spend $10 a month. And couldn't we shift that each month to support our favorite station? Think of the ways we spend our hours each day. Couldn't we shift some of it to feed our spirit? A news piece about Mr. Rogers has been going around the internet. It's called 15 Reasons Mr. Rogers Was the Best Neighbor Ever. In the article, they describe Fred Rogers' daily routine. The man didn't smoke, drink, or eat meat. He awakened each day at 5 a.m. and spent several hours praying for friends and family, responding to every single fan who ever wrote him a letter, studying, writing, and going for a swim. Then he was ready to start his day. The article goes on. Mr. Rogers was known as one of the toughest interviews because he'd often befriend reporters, asking them tons of questions, taking pictures of them, compiling an album for them at the end of their time together, and calling them after to check in on them and hear about their families. He wasn't concerned with himself and genuinely loved hearing the life stories of others. And it wasn't just with reporters. Once, on a fancy trip up to a PBS executive's house, he heard the limo driver was going to wait outside for two hours. So he insisted the driver come in and join them, which flustered the host. On the way back, Rogers sat up front, and when he learned that they were passing the driver's home on the way, he asked if they could stop in to meet his family. According to the driver, it was one of the best nights of his life. The house supposedly lit up when Rogers arrived, and he played jazz piano and bantered with them late into the night. Further, like with the reporters, Rogers sent him notes and kept in touch with the driver for the rest of his life. Fred Rogers drove a plain old Impala for years. One day, however, the car was stolen from the street near the TV station. When Rogers filed a police report, the story was picked up by every newspaper, radio, and media outlet around town. Amazingly, within 48 hours, the car was left in the exact spot where it was taken from, with an apology on the dashboard. It read, if we had known it was yours, we never would have taken it. What would your life look like if a miracle occurred overnight? Would it be the kind of life where every new encounter was an opportunity for a lifelong connection? Would it be the kind of life where someone's special request, like vegetarian food, wasn't seen as an inconvenience, but an amazing gift? Would it be the kind of life where your great-great-great-grandmother could visit you and feel honored that her toil and hard work so many years ago were honored in your life? May we all pause throughout our day, throughout our lives, to take notice of our journey, to listen for the hints about the rhythms that extend beyond our own lives, the supermoons and seasons, and to give thanks, and give thanks, and give thanks. Amen.
Thank you for tuning in to the Preacher Girl podcast. You can find more free downloadable episodes through iTunes or at podbean.com, where you can also find information about my work supporting couples and families with ceremonies of all kinds. Special thanks to sound engineer Stephen Grant Smith, whose music appears on this podcast. You can find more of his music at amazon.com. I hope you'll join me next time. As always, feed your spirit, live in love.